Hello and welcome to today's episode of Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Livewire readers love their small caps, and fair enough, things get exciting at the small end of town. Indeed, it's a part of the market where expertise and intimate familiarity with the stocks really matters. Anyone who knows anything about small cap investing knows today's guest, Ben Griffiths, the co-founder and managing director of Ellie Griffiths Group. Ellie Griffiths run two funds, the main small companies fund and an emerging companies fund. They both try and outperform the small odds accumulation index, with the emerging companies fund doing so with a higher risk profile. Ben is a bottom-up investor, but don't let that fool you. He's big on macro and what it means for stocks. You'll hear about the outlook for stocks as inflation rises, why Ben is bullish on commodity small cap stocks, and why an allocation to cash is so important in the current market. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever I post content. Not a subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Well, Ben, welcome back on to Rules of Investing. Thanks, David. Great to be here. Now, last time we had you on, which was in uh, 2019, you said markets were at an inflection point of sorts. Um, Basically, the bulls and the bears uh, didn't know what they were about, identity crises of sorts. Are we at a similar inflection point today? Well, I would suggest that we're... It's not necessarily a similar inflection point, but it is a potential watershed or inflection point all the same. So certainly investors, bulls or bears, need to make their mind up as to how they want to be positioned right now. Are you on the side of the bulls or the bears? Yeah, well, as um, listeners will know, I I tend to run with the bulls. Um, (laughs) That's my my predisposition. Um, But there are a couple of things that are just unsettling me around the edges um, that mean this bull is probably in the yard for a while, just having a think about things. <laughs> okay, so so obviously inflation's the the big conversation at the moment. Have we? How far do we have to go down the inflation road before things start improving? Yeah. Okay, and and that's probably the the, the one subject that's caught most investors' imagination, and and it's certainly generated the most angst. I think what we need to look at when we're looking at inflation is all about the rate of change in the level of inflation, not necessarily the absolutes. It's where the next print is. So we're looking at that and we want to see ideally a slowdown in the inflation rate. In other words, a slowdown in the momentum, in the, in the momentum of the new inflation prints that are issued rather than an acceleration, which is what we've been seeing of late. Now, it's unlikely that before July we'll see a slowdown. Uh, given this the the cycling of high numbers from last year, but it's essentially it, it'll be it'll be the rate of change as we see a slowdown in inflation that we think will steady um, investors' nerves. Now it won't necessarily be straight straight sailing or smooth sailing, as they say. On Friday night we had the employment numbers out in the United States, and that showed that the labour participation rate is reducing in the US. That basically means that labour supply is tightening. So you have strong demand for workers and you have reducing supply. That basically means the cost of labour goes up. That feeds directly into into inflation. And the other important element, of course, is which won't be lost on any of the listeners today, is the fact that around the world, Oil prices have been on a huge tear and petrol prices at the Bowser are at record levels. Um, that's an impost for consumers to wear and that also feeds into cost structures. 
So you've got an inflection in inflation we're looking to see, but there's also it's just not going to be straight s- smooth sailing again um, because there are there are genuine elements that are going the wrong way. If one's trying to call out a um, a, 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 a change in the direction of inflation, and I guess ultimately the market's guessing what's the neutral rate in the United States, and that will dictate how far the Fed tightens rates to. The issue has been that as long as inflation stays high, the 200 to 250 neutral rate estimate will be wrong, that the neutral rate will in fact be higher. Therefore, more interest rate hikes will be required. If inflation steadies and slows and and the rate of change slows, then the neutral rate will come down. Therefore, there won't be as much hiking required. That's the theory anyway on inflation and the importance of reading inflation rate of change. Okay, so we're looking for um, a slowing rate of change. What about consumer sentiment um, and and credit spreads? Yeah, no, that's all. All of that's very important. The consumer clearly um, is impacted directly by by um, oil and gas prices, p- prices at the pump, as I mentioned. Um, clearly, stock market wealth, uh, property prices. These all feed to a a, a consumer's well being and this and their state of affluence. Um, I think when you look at a consumer, um, you also look at an, an, an investor um, in, in, um, in, in, in stocks. Um, and what we haven't seen from consumers or, or, or investors, private investors, is, is a capitulation in share markets. We haven't seen a give up occur from, from them. Uh, yesterday's Wall Street Journal headline, I loved, it was investors stay put because they can't think of a better option. Um, when I see a headline like that, it, 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 it immediately tells me that um, investors are still fairly complacent about what we're seeing out there. Um, they're, they're complacent as investors and that uh, there's more, there's more uh, pain to be felt ahead. So I think we need to see that for a start. Uh, the, the survey of US retail investors, known as the AAAII survey, um, was printing that 24% of US private client investors are bullish. Um, that hit 16%, by the way, in, in April. Um, we need levels consistently below 20, again, to suggest that there's been a capitulation that investors, the, the household sector, are giving up on the stock market and, 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 and running away. We haven't seen that as yet. What does all this mean for, um, for, for stock trading? Now, is now the time to, to stay put and, and hold the line? Yeah, well, I said this bull was in the yard, um, and 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 I meant it. I think until we see a meaningful capitulation um, from in, from investors, uh, I need to see a bit more pain. We used to have an expression when I worked at ING: um, "Can you see the whites of their eyes yet?" Um, and I don't think anyone has seen the whites of the investors' eyes yet. I think they're still fairly relaxed with things. Um, I'm not I'm not forecasting any great um, cataclysm, but. What I'm saying, which the, which the listeners will be relieved to hear, what I'm saying is there's more pain to be felt. There's already been substantial pain inflicted on investors. I think the average stock in the S and P 500 um, by the by the end of April was down about 25 percent from its 52 week high, and the average Nasdaq stock was about down 27 percent. And that's the average stock in those particular in- indices. Um, there's some pretty beefy falls. That's a decent correction. So there's been plenty of of pain felt. I see uh, yesterday was referenced in the Wall Street Journal that 50% of stocks on the NYSE and the NASDAQ have made new 52-week lows. So half the market is now at a 52-week low. So there's been plenty of pain. I want to see the capitulation I'm talking about. I want to see that inflection in the inflation rate rate of change. 
And importantly, because I do don the hat as a technical analyst from time to time, I want to see relief rallies such as we see from time to time where the, where the S&P will trade up 3% on a, on a night. I want to see decent breadth. I want to see a lot more stocks going up than going down. I want to see the, the number 10 to 1, 10 up versus 1 down. That ratio is typically um, typically seen when markets have reached a nadir, a turning point. We haven't seen anywhere near that, uh, the 10 to 1 ratio. Um, I want to see new leadership. I want to see the stocks that the stocks that have been holding up quite nicely in the market, such as the energy names. Well, when we get a bounce, I want to see some new leaders. I want to see some of these tech names and these IT names rally. I want to see new leadership and a, and, and a broad advance. And just on technicals, I mean, um, I want to see a couple of indicators turn. I want to see the Kopok indicator, which is a tried and true indicator that this bull never leaves home without. I've always got it with me, and that hasn't turned yet. I want to see that turn. And there's a couple of very important support. Sorry, sorry. Lines. What is what is? Explain that indicator for well, us. The Kopok then. indicator is an aged indicator, which is a measure, a very slow moving measure of momentum and stock prices. Um, and its best work is done picking picking lows and turning points, not so much highs but lows. And it takes a long time to um, to actually um, to turn but the signals are very powerful when they occur at the right level. So I watched the COPOC very closely. Um, the COPOC did a spectacular turn on the COVID March 2000 lows, sorry, 2020 lows. Um, we haven't quite achieved those sorts of lows yet. I want to see a spectacular low and turn in the COPOC. I want to see a broad rally with new, with new stock leadership. And ideally, I want to see some technical levels, like on the S&P 500, I want to see 3,500 hit. On the all ordinaries, the local index, I want to see 61.90 hit and I want to see about 26.90 on the small ordinaries. So these are important technical levels that I think might accompany um, the, the, the clean out or the, or the final thrust or ga- gasp downwards. So there's a few things that need to happen before, before I get out of the yard as a bull and start trotting around and feeling pretty confident. So it's not gloom and doom because a lot of pain's been felt. There's just a little bit more work to be to be done, I feel. Well, you heard it here first. Ben is ready to leave the yard, um, <laughs> but not yet. So that's interesting. So the COPOC, um, so that's really a measure of, of momentum. And as we were saying off air, um, so much of retail investing really is momentum investing, right? Spot on, spot on. Absolutely. I mean, um, the household investor is typically uh, late-ish to the, to the market move um, on the way up and he's typically um, a little late on the exit as well. Um, that's just the way it, he, he or she work every cycle. And that's because professional investors um, employ valuation methodologies and, and modelling, so they tend to um, buy a little too early, and they tend to sell a little too soon as well. Um, but in but in the case of a major meltdown, it tends to serve them well. Let's move on to onto the small caps. Uh, resource stocks make up such a big part of the index about about a third of the index. Now you're long term bullish uh, on commodities. What's your base case moving forward? Sure. Well, we as a house, Ely Griffiths Group, started properly and and reasonably aggressively. Uh, positioning positioning ourselves and resource names about 10 months ago. And there's a host of reasons why we figured the cycle was right and it was time to embrace commodities and it was time to embrace resource stocks. And you're right, it's a big part of the benchmark these days and the small ordinaries, it's 
if you include energy, it's about 30% and we're closer to 35% in our small company fund and around that in our emerging companies fund. And there's a couple of pretty clear reasons that I'll share with um, yourself, David, and the, and the listeners. The first thing is, uh, and I have a chart actually in front of you here, which um, which which hopefully the uh, the listeners will see in yeah, due course. We'll, we'll put it up on the wire. Yep. So it talks about the strong performance that commodities tend to exhibit um, when we have a rate hiking cycle. And you can see on, on the chart that commodities, um, emerging markets, gold and even even the Nikkei, but certainly commodities have been uh, are the standout performer um, during each of the nine hiking cycles that we've seen in the global economy since 1972. Commodities take uh, take flight. So that's the first plank is is you've got the cycle um, on your side. Uh, we've we've believed for a while that there are pronounced structural shortages across many many um, commodity types, in particularly the base metals. So that works in favour. There's clearly there's the new green or electric vehicle demand for for cobalt and lithium, but even beyond cobalt and lithium, there is genuine new demand for nickel and aluminium and copper um, in in EVs. We've all seen the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and that has provided quite serious medium and probably longer-term disruption to energy and soft commodity supply. That's bullish for commodities. Um, The one we like, the sleeper, is the fact that the market being so conservative, most analysts um, have have got very conservative estimates on commodities and base metals and bulks, um, and spot prices have been consistently way above um, um, uh, assumptions, which means that resource stocks are generally uh, and will be for a while in in, a, in an upgrade cycle. So there's more earnings upgrades to come through for resource names. China is clearly the the wild card in all of this, and everybody's got a theory on the Middle Kingdom. China is for as long as China remains the marginal buyer of commodities, forty to sixty percent of demand for almost every commodity um, is is derived from China. Um, they're in some bother with COVID zero and, and and a general slowdown in property and fixed asset investment. They need to stimulate fast, and we think that there'll be the unfurling of some 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 um, incentives. There'll be some easing. In fact, the, the Chinese are going the other way. The rest of the world's tightening. They'll be, they'll be starting to be, begin an easing cycle, which we think will stimulate its founding foundering economy. So you'll have a policy response that will start to re re kickstart or, or, or restart China. So China returns as a as a buyer of commodities when at the moment it's somewhat uh, piecemeal. And the final plank, and we can go on forever talking about commodities, of course. And the other the other uh, plank that I think is very valuable, and this comes from years um, years of doing this, and it's on a chart that also will appear. Um, we're going to talk to you right now, and it'll appear in the um, the email that uh, many of the listeners will have is the fabled exploration clock. And that was designed by uh, Robin Whittup, who was, a, who was a famed gold analyst at uh, the house of J.B. Weirs back in the, in the 90s. And I remember um, him publishing the exploration clock, which details as the stages of the resources market, starting with boom at six and finishing at 12 with a crash and various events and markers that need to occur. Um, and I basically tick them off as we go through to see where we're at. I'm hazarding a guess. My experience would have us at about seven, seven thirty. Um, we'll be at eight o'clock probably um, by mid-year, and that essentially is a time when we have a lot of new floats, and we've had probably forty or fifty new 
resource or materials um, IPOs. We have equity raisings and we're having beginnings of rising exploration. There's more activity. So that's um, approaching. That will approach 8 o'clock on the exploration clock and, of course, 12 o'clock is, is what is um, re- um, referred to as the crash time. Um, it keeps good time, this timepiece. It's been going since 1993. Um, it's another one of these tools that whilst I don't I sometimes leave home without it. Um, it's never far away. So the the expiration clock suggests that we are well into, but a long way from the conclusion of the resources cycle. So that should go some way to detailing why we have a a, a, a pretty aggressive position um, 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 exposed to resource names. So what's the IPO pipeline looking like if we're if we're at the new floats um, point in the clock? Yeah, well, it, it was looking it was looking good um, up until probably two or three weeks ago. So I think the events on Wall Street the, and the fairly deep uh, correction that was seen it started with tech more or less and has spread to the, the wider market. I think the prospect and the ease of raising fresh capital, not only IPOs, uh, even just um, just placements and, and equity raisings for specific purposes, just gets a bit tougher. New IPOs, I think that market feels like it's on hold. For the remainder of um, X X lithium, because I've seen you know what what's listed this year so far, and yeah, and lithium is doing all right. Yeah, no, it is, and we'll see. But when it comes to raising fresh equity, um, I think it will. It's a good test for investor appetite. I think the IPO market is probably goes on hold um, for much of this year, um, and I think the main equity raisings we'll see will be from company specific or specific companies that are buying specific assets with shareholder bases that are um, believers in the in the company and the asset that's being bought and they can probably achieve things. So for a while, I think fundraising, equity raising goes into a bit of a hiatus. But to your point earlier, um, I think we were talking off air, um, sentiment can change literally on the, on the flick of a switch and all of a sudden it's bullish and people are lining up for new floats. And, and and deals. So that can change very quickly. But right now, the, the environment seems a little subdued for me. So in general, Ben, what kind of resource companies do you like? Do you like the explorers or the developers uh, or the producers? What, what, what part of the market do yeah, you Yeah, sure. Sure. Look, we, we, because we are a fundamental um, house, we're, we're, we're driven by and motivated by companies that have deep and rich fundamentals. Um, it should be no surprise that we our focus is on producers, but we do like advanced development development players as well. Um, common threads are that we 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 back management teams more more often than not that we know very well that we might have had a prior experience with. So we will we will buy developers when we are very confident with the management and very confident with the resource or the reserve. We've seen the. The pre-fees or the or the bankable feasibility study, um, and we're comfortable what's, with what's planned, and we can get comfortable around that. Um, so we do look for underpinning fundamentals, solid management, and then of course it's it's favourable, but not a requisite condition that we have a supportive commodity environment. We've made some great returns, and and um, you know we owned Saracen Minerals for for a long while there before gold was doing too much, and we have Capricorn. Metals as well. Another one, a development story, and 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 Capricorn's a good story, a good case of a proven management team um, with great commercial acumen, with with an asset they're about to commission, and then an acquisition agenda, and they've already acquired another asset. Um, very backable team, uh, and then conveniently, 
the gold prices performed quite well, um, both in A dollars and US dollars. So the backdrop's good. So we are driven by fundamentals. We will invest across the resources space. We we own um, uh, we've owned a couple of lithium plays along the way. We 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 own Iluca Mineral Sands. Um, we own a very exciting iron ore play in Canada and Champion Iron. Um, uranium, um, of course, has come back on, come back on radar, and we were early investors in Paladin across both our small company and our emerging company fund. Um, and we've got some Karoon as well. Even bought some Worley the other day, which is of course an engineering play on hydrocarbons and and uh, on hydrocarbons and and renewable projects as well, for that matter. Um, so that's the sort of should give you a flavour for the sort of businesses we own. Um, and as you pointed out, it's 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 thirty percent of the benchmark now. Uh, it, to to say that to tell investors or listeners, as the case may be, oh, we don't invest in resource names. So you're sort of shunning about thirty percent of the benchmark, um, which we which we we manage to, which we which we have an eye to. Um, you're taking a big view that um, you know better. And this time around, normally mining service names will run in lockstep with 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 commodity names, and this time it hasn't been the case. You touched on this uh, before when you mentioned how important fundamentals um, of the business are. At, at face value, it seems that a lot of these companies, you know, they either they either dig their holes and, and find the rocks they're looking for, um, or they ride the commodity price cycle. So, what's what's your step by step in terms of filtering these companies? I suppose I we, we won't open the we won't open the front cover on an annual report if we aren't familiar with or aren't confident with the management team. Um, and if we if we don't like the management team, the the the, the, um, the annual report um, may not may not even last on the desk. Um, to be honest, to be frank about it, but it's really dealing with uh, and sitting down with people we're comfortable with, um, who have a high degree of um, confidence in their in their abilities and their track records and their and their ethics and and the generally and their, and their suitability for the job. So it's getting comfortable with management, and that's an obvious tick. It's then forming a view on the prospectivity, um, either of either the production potential of or history of the mine that we might be investing into or the company that has a mine. Um, and we want to know about the production life, the potential for life extensions, the the expiration upside around the mine, uh, what sort of job the previous operators have done, have they left an opportunity there for us. We want to get a handle on mining costs, the cost of actually extracting the ore. Does the operation actually make money? Um, we, we like to know where previous operators have gone wrong with the mining operation. Um, we want to know that. So we want to deep, get deep into the history of who's had the, who's had this operation beforehand. Um, if it's a if it's a um, a development play, we want to know how much capital has been sunk. Um, is this the second time around? Is this the second or third owner that hasn't been able to get this business this mine to work? We want to know exactly why. An expiration. Um, well, that is always that's sort of the the wild card in any in any company that we'd invest in. We would never buy just an explorer. Um, well, very unlikely to, I should I should add, um, and that would be us forming an opinion of the prospectivity of a given area, the history of the of the region, um, and how they and how this company happened upon this extraordinary opportunity. Um, clearly, we can invest in companies that that, that mine operations, or sorry, that are miners in international markets. We need to be confident that if they're in Africa, that they're in the right part of Africa. 
If they're in South America, we need to get comfortable there as well, which we can do and quite, quite, quite easily, I guess. Um, but we are very mindful of sovereign risks. And so it's a pretty, it's a pretty detailed due diligence that we put ourselves through before we'll step up and invest in some of these businesses. And then the discipline is about, um, you know, the tolerance for volatility, whether it's in operating regime, um, whether it's commodity price. Um, and I think the beauty of our team, we've got a, an experienced set of operators and I've been investing in resource companies since um, since the mid-90s um, and we have Tim Sargent who joined us a number of years ago. Tim's a, a part owner of the business and he's his Rolodex uh, for West Perth and and Hay Street Kalgoorlie is pretty impressive. So, so we've got good on the ground skills, and, and you do need that. You, you're straying into a space that can be tricky. So, it's certainly experience. Um, it's it's knowing which way's up, and it's also knowing the right phone calls to make. To make a couple of phone calls and find out whether we're looking at this thing. Are we on the right track here? So, there's there's a whole host of things that go into it, and then it's basically valuation methodologies. If I assume this much gold price, this is the currency expectations. This is the mining cost. This is the throughput rate. Um, we can arrive at a at a DCF, and and then we work out you know, plus or minus. Do we believe it? Um, we go from there. Yeah, a few years ago, I actually um, went and reported from the Diggers and Dealers conference over in Kalgoorlie. And you're right; everyone just knows everyone. Yeah, no, it's a you, 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 that's right. It's a it's a it's a bit of a mafia there, a bit of a click, and um, and it, and it pays to to be in touch with those uh, with those operators. Now you've also moved into um, some larger cap names. Is that just a function? Well, first of all, what are they? Um, and is that a function of just the tighter market we find yeah. ourselves in? Yeah, no, it's um, that's that's a good point. Um, so we're, we're small cap managers. The small cap universe is about two hundred and forty-five billion in size, um, and we've been been able to successfully exploit investing in smaller companies uh, for 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 a long time. We're, 19 years under Ely Griffiths Group. I suppose one of the frustrations that occurs when you manage in this end of the market where you're nursing businesses from being sometimes little playthings and quite small into very meaningful businesses, you um, you say goodbye to them as they leave the ASX or the small ordinaries and join the ASX 100. And I suppose the frustration we've had as, as managers is to not be able to fully exploit the mid-cap life um, and, and that's what we've, we're looking at, not large caps. It's actually mid caps. So it's actually um, preserving our small cap presence as these businesses flourish and become mid caps. So we've just given ourselves some flexibility to extend our stay, and that is make make ownership of some of these X50 names, they're called, mid cap names, um, a permanent feature of the portfolio. And, you know, we can give ourselves up to about 15% of the portfolio can go into mid-cap names on a permanent basis, whereas before we had some fairly strict rules around cutting them. And that's not because we've run out of room. I mean, 245 bill for the small lords, plenty of room there. And it's, I think it's another 260 billion um, sits up in, the, in that mid-cap range. So that's just really for us extending our investment sample space into businesses, many businesses we've already owned before or we're familiar with, it's hunting where we know um, and that is that mid-cap part of the market has been a very sweet part of the market in the performance sense but preserving what's important to us which is being able to invest back down the line, going back down to those really smaller businesses that, that you, must, you mustn't lose track of because they are very much the future. They are the, the really the emerging companies 
become small companies, become mid caps. And so that's part of the process we have is managing these these stories through. That's an interesting point. You get the sense in Australia we're so obsessed with our blue chip stocks, our dividend paying stocks, um, that you forget those were once, you know, the, the small cap stocks of today are those blue chip dividend paying stocks of tomorrow and there's a life cycle they've got to go through. So, you know, you can't have your blue your blue chips um, without those blue chips being small caps at some point. That's right. No, precisely. Um, and and I guess investors want to own established blue chips, high dividend payers, secure, well-covered, well-researched, solid businesses, and as they should. Um, but equally, um, I guess part of the thrill of and part of the value accretion in stock investing is actually having a part of the portfolio exposed um, and positioned in favour of these genuine growth counters that, that, that will become the blue chips uh, of tomorrow. And we've all seen them. You know, I remember when Ramsey Health was uh, was was an absolute minnow in in 1998. Um, it was uh, it was of, of not much consequence at all. And look at it today, enormous business. Domino's Pizza, uh, another great example of a business that was, you know, was more than conceptual, but it was really uh, nascent in its uh, its stage. Look at it now; it's a substantial operator of that Domino's franchise. So that's precisely um, part of the game is is to is to is to, to if it is to, for us to position investors on those growth those growth planes and uh, and and enjoy the ride. Let's leave resources uh, for the minute. You're off tech. Yeah, we're off tech. We we um, not for good. Um, but just made the decision. It's one of those parts of the market that, um, you know, you've, the real discussion in the market, there's a lot of talk about value versus growth and and the real thematic that's played out has not been really value versus growth. It's been profitable names versus unprofitable names, companies making profits and those that aren't. Um, tech fits into that because tech invariably, um, big valuation price tags and and um, many of the names, not all, but many of the names um, are loss-making. The calendar year to date um, as at end of April, so year to date, end of April, um, profitable stocks on the Australian Stock Exchange, profitable stocks were down 4%. Unprofitable stocks were down twenty five percent. That theme, as we speak, continues to play out. So it's been all about the market's focus on on underlying fund dumps and profitability, and unprofitable names have been shunned. IT or, or tech is the poster child for 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 unprofitable names. Um, so so, you know, so so long duration stocks in the current market just just don't make sense. Correct, and it's not just the last couple of weeks. Um, those stocks have been correcting from late November. The tech names, IT names across the globe have been pulling back drastically. Um, you know, we we did have Megaport and Life Three Hundred and Sixty in the small cap portfolio, and we quit those holdings. Um, then we had a bunch of names, of course, in the emerging companies fund, Pentanet, um, Bluebet, Family Zone, those sorts of businesses that are that are sort of tech related, um, and we quit those names. So. You talk about we talked about rotations off air, the importance of moving portfolios into the next sector. I mean, that's one rotation that we'd sort of had an eye to, which was being out of, and it was reinforced in February with the reporting season. You don't want to have too big an allocation to unprofitable companies. The market was not in the mood for it, so so and tech 
to your point, tech's an example of that space. So we've we've been we've been lightening the saddlebags there. While we're talking about moving in and out of positions, how much cash are you holding at the moment? Yeah, we've intentionally let cash um, drift upwards in both portfolios. Um, sort of less than sort of circa ten percent ish in the small company fund, and a, a bit, a little bit more in the emerging companies fund. And that's be, not because we see ourselves as master tactical allocators. Um, it's because we sense markets have not completed their retracement. Um, and we sense there'll be some opportunities to buy the dip. Um, if you're sitting at 2% cash, it's a pretty lonely place to be. You can't buy the dip. You can't subscribe to what they call emergency equity raisings if they present themselves. Um, we want to be in a position to actually do some smart buying, some clever buying, uh, and you need to have cash to do that. So it's more about moving fast than, than warehousing capital. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, no, as I said, we're not, we don't, we're not, don't hold ourselves out as tactical allocators. We're just, um, uh, we build cash for strategic reasons, which is we'll be able to buy some of these stocks cheaper in the next, next one to two to three months. And that's the purpose. So we've let intentionally let cash drift up. And that's been, um, something we've done. I would suggest probably during reporting, reporting season in February, we sort of, saw what we saw and let cash build. Have you ever been caught out in the past not having enough cash to pursue positions you want, that you want to? Probably, and I, and I can't re- remember a time because in that situation, I suppose you just do a – you rotate out of a, a stock that you're less keen on into one that you think has superior prospects. So I can't think of a period, whereas I can think of a period where we intentionally went to cash because we were anxious about the world and that was coming into covid that was January into February of 2020, where we let cash intentionally swell um, because we figured the world was about to experience something that we hadn't seen before and that a, a, a disease as potent as it was would have calamitous multiplier, economic multiplier effects. And again, we said the markets are going to not hate this. And uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, they're gonna be raising money. There's gonna be all sorts of opportunities to deploy cash. Let's sit on cash. Let's ride the market down. And we were right until sort of end of March, and then the market propelled upwards. You know, the the combined strength of a flood of liquidity, central banks committed to lower rates, and and developed economies and governments um, launching. Fiscal protections and safety nets, um, job seeker, job keeper here, payroll protections in the UK and the US. There was all sorts of underwriting. Um, and we had a bit of cash going into that for all the right reasons and then had to deploy it reasonably quickly. Okay. Now, Ben, we always finish the podcast with three of our favorite questions, um, common questions. Uh, question one, what book has been most influential on your uh, investment philosophy? Sure, um, it's a it's a terrific book. In fact, there's two books. If I if I may indulge you, um, the first the first one is Winning on Wall Street by Martin Zweig, who was a an extraordinary and a highly regarded uh, Wall Street strategist in in through the 90s, and he, he wrote a terrific book on how he approaches the business of investing in stocks. And what he looks for. Um, that book I've read several times. Um, so, Winning on Wall Street, um, a, a must read for, for investors by Martin Zweig. Which can be applied on Main Street. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly. Um, you know, the, 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 the rules there are as valid as they were 
as they were um, when, he, when he wrote the book. And the other book I really like is by a guy called Richard Farley, who's who's a, an Australian trader who now lives in lives in the UK, called Taming the Lion. And uh, Taming the Lion uh, is a first-hand account of how Richard Farley, how he how he grew, um, or how he grew his wealth, of course, but how he started off as a, as a trader at Bankers Trust, trading currencies and even sold his home to put it all into Deutschmarks and got long Deutschmarks and had a spectacular trade and went from there. So he's a successful trader um, in his own right and his methods and his reading of markets is extraordinary. And so a lot of the rules that uh, that he runs with, um, I know I've certainly got etched um, above my computer screen. So he's a tremendous um, trader and a great book to read. So I gave you two. You asked for one, but I think Martin Zweig and Richard Farley, they're two very different individuals, one from here and one from the US, but both great reading. Question two, could you tell us about your biggest uh, gain or loss and what, what did you learn from it? Yeah, sure. I mean, perhaps, um, well, I remember I can tell you about both. Um, um, probably my my biggest gain as a professional investor was when Brian, Brian Ely and the, the other co-founder of Ely Griffiths Group and myself, we, we bought into a stock by the name of Andean Resources. And Andean Resources was looking to exploit a gold gold um, prospect in, in Patagonia or near enough close to Patagonia in, in Argentina. And um, we patiently, we patiently did the work on it. It was... Probably a little rougher than a development project, to be honest. It was advanced exploration. And um, we formed a view. We got close to management. We we did a lot of work on who historically has discovered and, and, and exploited gold in that area, gold discoveries in the area, and, and um, formed an opinion there. And um, and I think that stock was probably by the time we'd finished buying it and then sitting there and being patient, I think it might have been a 15-bagger for us. So that was a tremendous, tremendous investment for us. Um, so that one springs to mind immediately, and um, and I and I remember um, and I remember getting. Um, well, I think I learnt the I learnt the, the 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 punishment of being seduced by low P stocks, and we bought into a couple of timber lot operators um, in the early two thousands, and they were promoting and managed investment schemes. And um, and Brian and I were at at, at ING at the time, and we had a, a modest investment in one or two of those Timberlot um, promoters, which were promoting um, blue gum plantations. And I guess when something looks too good to be true, it's on a PE of six and a dividend yield of sort of four and a half percent, and they're selling Timberlots like um, like hotcakes. Or like it, or like ice creams down at Bondi. Um, it all looks too good to be true. It probably is. And when stocks are on PEs of less than seven, which the timber lots were, the rule of thumb is they simply aren't um, because the E is wrong. <laughs> the E is half what it should be, so it's actually fourteen times. So I think when something's too good to be true, it isn't. Um, and the timber lot um, uh, promoters, manufacturers. Um, uh, basically, it all ended up uh, either being taken out or um, or going broke. Uh, so, so what tr- what happened? They they fudged the numbers. Oh well, it's a it's a long story. There was an enormous um, media campaign against them uh, because they were basically tax tax rorts, um, exploitative in nature. Uh, they were run by 
in some cases, in many cases, um, probably questionable promoters. And um, and uh, the, the, the stocks basically ran out of funding. They couldn't raise money. And, of course, they end up, a lot of them hit the wall and, and uh, in fact, many of them hit the wall. So I suppose we had small positions there. Uh, we bought them on the fundamental recognition. But again, um, that was misplaced. So that's probably a lesson learnt on on on, um, and that was very early to uh, hand on heart, very early in my small cap investing career, and I wasn't familiar with the personalities. Um, and this and MIS was still a very valid legal and very popular, and still is today, I guess. Um, but but um, blue gum managed managed investment schemes frequented by white collar professionals were all the go. And it just looks like at the end of the day they were mischievous products. Who were driven by tax advantage and and had no place being listed, and um, so we fell foul of that. So a good story in Andean Resources, where we recognised a, a, a great opportunity when we saw one, and then got and then got bid for with our shareholding, and then a disappointing story with, with the managed investment scheme operators of the early two thousands. But that's that's investing. You need to you need to learn, pick yourself up, and move on. And finally, Ben, uh, if you could only invest in one company, not that we recommend that, but what would it be? Um, what, um, here or internationally or just anywhere? Interpret it how you will. Sure, sure. Well, I I think it would probably be hand on heart uh, Microsoft in the US. Uh, we all know Microsoft, of course, one of the world's great companies. Um, and I was a I was an investor. I waited while the uh, post the Steve Ballmer days when the stock went sideways and didn't do anything for a decade. And I waited patiently and watched the stock. And in September quarter 2016, Microsoft broke out and and started to move. And I saw the break and thought, is this the setup we've been waiting for? Is this stock finally finished this decade-long consolidation? So I bought some at $57. And um, and I kick myself now, but I sold them um, at about $155 a share, which I was anxious about the market settings and I was and I figured I'd probably done well enough out of it. And the upshot of it is you don't sell good companies. Now, Microsoft has kicked through to $300 a share. It's come back, of course, in the recent route. Um, that'll be a name I can't wait to buy on pullback. So I think Microsoft is one of the world's truly great businesses and will continue to be. They're, they're, they're the cleverest guys in the room. They have extraordinary businesses across everything they do. And so on the current route, if the current route continues and, and, and becomes deeper and, and you get you get Microsoft back at 210 bucks a share, um, I can't see it going too much below that, um, but never say never. I think that's a buy. So I think Microsoft is one of the great businesses and that's the one I, I, I see myself returning to as an investor with the opportunity, the right opportunity. Well, on that note, Ben, thanks so much for coming on Rules of Investing. This has been great. Thanks, David. Thanks for your time today. Well, that's it for today's episode. Lots going on in the small cap space and markets generally. And Ben certainly has his finger on the pulse. The Ellie Griffiths crew published frequently on Livewire, so don't forget to sign up to livewiremarkets.com to stay up to date on their current thinking. I'll see you next week.